Brilliant. So let's, uh, let's pray together as we come to look at those verses. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, that it is truth and life. And I guess we all come this morning in different places, different views of who you are and what you've done for us. And please now speak into our hearts, whoever we are. I speak of Jesus. Speak to us personally, individually, and speak to us corporately as a church, that we might better know your love and better love one another. For his name's sake, amen. Um, I'm still emotionally scarred by my first disco. Warpeston Village Hall, 1983. Number one was Let's Dance by David Barry. And number two was Sweet Dreams Are Made Of This by The Arrhythmics, two great tunes. Problem was, I didn't know what to wear. So I asked uh, uh, the teenage girl who came to the church that my uh, dad was vicar of. And she said her brother, whenever he went to a disco, wore a dinner suit. <laughs> you know, black tie, tuxedo if you're American. So I thought, I've never been to one, I'll, I'll obviously do that. So I borrowed my dad's black tie. Problems started when I arrived at the mate's house where we were all getting together beforehand. Everyone else was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. And quite quickly I became the centre of attention, centre of conversation. Didn't get better when we got to the hall in a room full of about 100 teenagers, I think I was 12, 13, the only person, funnily enough, you might be surprised to know, the only person in a dinner suit. Anyway, you know how it is, the tunes get into you. It was Let's Dance by David Barry, if you don't know. No, it's a classic tune. Let's dance, put on your red shoes and dance the blues. So I was thinking, okay, I did a few moves, a few boy moves. You know what boy moves are like? It's like, you know, you tap your feet, you might just move. You don't have to do what to do with your arms, do you? If you're a bloke dancing, you just not a clue what to do with your arms, but I'm giving it a go, not a clue. And you know that feeling if you're a bloke and you're dancing? I expect women have this feeling as well, but I, I think men have it more, and you feel like everyone's looking at me and they think I'm a plonker. <laughs> the problem was, that feeling was reality. <laughs> so I shuffled off the dance floor, not to return for the next 37 years. My tune ever since has been, I don't want to dance, dance with your baby no more. Fortunately, on the way out, no one noticed my attire, because the big news was that Eddie Stock had got off with Noe McLean. I got off is another 1980s technical term for snog, uh, around the back of the hall, so I got away with it. We all long to be accepted, don't we? We long to fit in. We're to feel secure in our relationships, whether that's in the school playground or whether that's in, in the office or down the pub. Uh, when we walk in and we see a smiling face looking at us, a friend who we know who is for us, we feel at ease. We feel safe. We feel loved, even. I guess that's why we're so concerned about our Facebook friends. It's why people will stage their photos on Instagram, want to see how many people have liked their posts. We long to be accepted, to have a group of people who give us that feeling of, yeah, I fit in, I matter, I'm safe here. Now, the Bible says we're wired like that because we're created in the image of a God who is loving relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, before anything made in all eternity are in a relationship of perfect loving to love together. They are a, a community in one God, and therefore we know that relationships are what matter most. We're created to feel safe and be loved. 
And of course, the church should be the group of people who most reflect that love. Because that's what a church is. It's not a building or an institution. It's a group of people brought together through the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So surely we should be the most accepting people on the planet. But, but sadly, that's not always the case. In fact, Christians can be worse than others at looking down on people, even judging each other. And that was what was going on in the church in Rome. Like a lot of the first churches, it was made up of people who had been Jews beforehand and then become Christians, and people who were Gentiles, non-Jews. That was because Jesus himself was a Jew. He'd come to fulfill what we have in the first half of our Bibles, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. He was the Jewish Messiah, God's promised king. And as those promises were fulfilled, the message of God's saving love in Jesus went out through the whole world. So in about AD 57, an early Christian called Paul writes this letter to a church in Rome. It's 24 years after Jesus died and rose again to deal with a problem they've got. I wonder if you see it in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. He says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. Now maybe you're uh, new to church this morning, you thought, there's a lot about eating and drinking in the Bible I never realized. That's because the Jewish Christians had grown up with the Old Testament food laws. They'd been taught that they weren't allowed to eat certain foods like pork and prawns. They, they were taught also to celebrate festivals on certain days. Those were laws given to teach them that they were different from the nations who were around them. Different because they were God's people. But when Jesus came and fulfilled the whole Old Testament, he said, look, it doesn't matter, you can eat what you want. And you don't have to keep the old calendar of festivals. The problem was that therefore the Jewish Christian, they might believe they could eat anything, but they just couldn't bring themselves to tuck into a bacon sandwich. It didn't feel right. That's why Paul calls them weak in faith. You see, it doesn't matter to God, but it still mattered to them. You can imagine the scene. It's the church barbecue, and the strong in faith have been put in charge of the catering. And they've been down to Little, I can recommend this, and they've got a lot of those pork steaks soaked in maple syrup, and they've stuck them on the barbecue. And uh, they're handing out the food, and they walk over to a Jewish uh, brother, and uh, with a big bit of pork chomping away in their mouth, sauce dripping down their beard, they say, come on, mate, get, get a bit of this down you. And uh, the Jewish brother, his, his stomach turning at the thought of doing that, politely declines. And the, the strong Christian says, come on, you know, don't be such a spoil sport. You know we can eat anything. Get it down you, it won't do you any harm. And when the Jewish Christian still refuses, well, they wander back to the barbecue and, and they say to their fellow, their Gentile, their fellow non-Jewish friend, can't believe Isaac won't eat this stuff. I mean, he's such a legalist doesn't get how free we are. And of course, as they say that, they just feel a little bit better about themselves, how much they understand the good news about Jesus in a superior way. Whereas Isaac, he just can't stop himself thinking, those Gentiles, they just want to be like everyone else. I mean, they don't take God's law seriously. And what Paul says is, look, they're both wrong. What, what really matters is the way you treat each other. Look at verse 3 with me. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God 
has accepted them. Now, it's a little outside guess by me, but I suspect this is not a raging issue amongst us here at Chessington. It's just a guess. But Christians are still looking down on each other for, for all sorts of reasons, judging each other. You know, whether you sing with your hands in your pockets, you don't know what to do with them, or whether you stick them in the air because you've really got the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we judge each other. Whether you wear a jacket to church or whether you come in a t-shirt. Whether you think it's fine to go to the cinema or whether you think actually ever watching an 18 film is something that you should do. Whether you can buy a pint of milk on Sunday or whether that's something that displeases God. The list is almost endless in the ways that Christians will judge each other look down on each other. And the real sadness of that is, is, of course, that the church should be a family where people are accepted, a family where people feel secure, feel loved, whoever they are, whatever their background, whatever they wear to a disco. And so the big idea here comes in, in 14.1, accept one another, or 15.7, if you look at chapter 15.7, accept one another. And that word accept doesn't just mean like put up with at a distance, oh yeah, I can accept you. <laughs> it means welcome into your innermost circle of friends. Take into your, your family relationships. It means warmly love. And when a church is like that, Paul says that's a church that brings praise to God. Because people look in on a church like that and they go, well, that's a miracle. You take this bunch of strange people and you make them love each other like that. So why does Paul say we should accept one another? We're going to do two headings. The first one is long. The second one is short. The first heading is three points. Here are three reasons to accept one another. It's this. You're all accepted by God. Accept one another because you're all accepted by God. It comes at the end of verse 3. Paul says, for God has accepted them. And then verse 7 of chapter 15. In order to accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you. In fact, the whole of this letter to Romans has been an explanation of the God who accepts us. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Paul's outlined how by nature we all reject God. How we worship the, the creation around us rather than the loving God who created it. Like the Bible calls that sin. We live for ourselves, our desires, our wants. And that is deeply offensive to the God who gives us life day by day. And the result is we make a terrible mess of, of even loving the people that he's put into our lives. For some reason, I don't know about you, but for some reason I can't even be the man I want to be to, to, to my family. Can you be the person you want to be to your, to your partner? Even the people we want to love, we often reject and we hurt. The extraordinary thing is that though we reject him, God seeks us out. That the reminders of how he does that in this passage. In, in verse 9, Paul says, Christ died and rose. In verse 15, Christians are described as people for whom Christ died. You see, the God we reject came in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he lived the life we should have lived. And then he died the death that we deserve to die for our sin, for our selfishness. And so at the cross, everything that is unacceptable about us to God, our hate, our anger, our greed, our, our lies, it's all placed on, on his son, Jesus. He's rejected by God 
And that's why he cries out at the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, rejected me? He's rejected so we might be accepted, so that God might welcome us into his intimate group of close friends. He might warmly and lovingly bring us into his family. And I guess a lot of us struggle with the feeling of not being acceptable to others. We fear what people think of us, whether that be out in a crowd or that be even at home with our, with our mates. And frankly, people will always let us down if we look to them for acceptance. But the God who knows us better than we know ourselves accepts us as we are, warts and all. We reject and ignore him. We cold shoulder him. He, in love, gives his son for us. And when you know the security of that love, it just begins to change your attitude to other people. It means you can just give up a bit on your tribe and love people whoever they are. See, God's accepted us at great cost, so accept each other, says Paul. And secondly, he says, accept one another because you, you all belong to Christ. Look at chapter 14 and verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. See, Christians are all servants of Jesus. Servants who have strongly held views on what Paul calls disputable matters, like what you do on a Sunday. Do you see that in verse 5? One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Now remember, we're talking about things here that the Bible doesn't tell us are wrong and things that the Bible doesn't tell us that we should do. Things that are not forbidden by the Bible and things that are not commanded by the Bible. And Paul says, when you're thinking about things that are neutral in one way according to the Bible, what matters is your conscience, whether you think you're pleasing God or not. Look how he puts it in verse 6. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. See the repeated idea? Actually, the idea of doing so to the Lord comes nine times in these, these six verses. He says, whatever you're doing, the key thing is that you're doing it to the Lord. That's what it is to be a Christian. Not, not just to know that you're accepted by God through Jesus, but, but to recognize him as Lord in your life, to, to want to please him. So Paul says in verse 8, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. We belong to Jesus, all of us. That's what really matters. Are we trying to please him? Now, the idea of belonging to Jesus might seem pretty unattractive. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't belong to anyone. I'm the master of my own life, the captain of my own fate. I'm going to please myself. But, but in the end, we all belong to something or someone. We all have Lord or Lords who, who govern us day by day, who, who change what we do and why we do it. So, so for some people, Lord is work. It's our desire to be a success that, that controls our life. We serve that desire. For some, Lord is image. 
So the way we think about our, our body or our, or our beauty controls how we, we spend our, our time, our money. Uh, I'm at an age now where it's clear that I'm, I'm fighting a losing battle against the decay of my body. They recently offered me a, uh, a loyalty card of the doctors I've been in there so regularly. It, we just, some people are trying to fight, aren't they, all the time against the process of decay. It might be that your, your Lord is your family or, or more specifically your children. It's so the way they do at school or, or at sport or how happy they are rules the way you feel about yourself. It might be your Lord is simply your comfort. So every day you're serving that Lord, that hope that you'll be able to sit down in your ideal home, financially secure and not exhausted. That's what's controlling your life. And the problem with all those Lords is they drag us down. They're, they're masters who in the end destroy their servants. They either leave us feeling that we've failed again or again or again, or they encourage us to compare ourselves to one another, to judge others, don't they? To look down upon that person who's, who's less capable of us at work, but to look up to that person who we feel is more capable. To look down upon the person whose kids are performing less well, but to look up to the person whose kids seem to be doing better than ours. All the time we're in that comparison game, and that drags us down. But look at the sort of Lord Jesus is in verse 4 again. Jesus is the Lord who is able to make you stand. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. However weak you are, however frail you are, he is the Lord who makes his people stand. That's the nature of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is only interested in pulling us up out of the lies of the world around us that consume our lives and to bring us to be his servants Servant of the King of Kings and the, the Lord of Lords who has accepted us. Look, that's why he died and rose again, says Paul in verse 9. To bring you all into his family. To bring you all under his rule. So your life is about pleasing him. And he's for you in that life. It's not a test. He's the one who'll keep you going. He's the one who'll change you to make you able to serve him. Look, you all belong to the same Lord. You're all trying to please him. So stop judging one another. And remember, actually, says Paul, one day you'll be judged by him. That, that's the third thing he says about accepting one another. Accept one another because you're all accountable to God. Now, now verse 10 of chapter 14 might come as a bit of a, a shock to you. Paul says, you then... Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. If, you, if you're a Christian here, you might be thinking, wait a second. I thought Jesus took my punishment at the cross. What do you mean I'm going to be judged by God? And, and if you're not yet a Christian here, you might be thinking, well, the idea of God judging the world seems just a bit far-fetched uh, anyway. But, but the Bible's clear. One day Jesus will return and every knee will bow before him and he will judge every man, woman and child who's ever lived. That, that's emphasized in these verses actually. Paul talks how we will all stand before the judgment seat. Every tongue will acknowledge God. Each of us individually will, will give an account. Now those who are following Jesus, they're, they're certain of the verdict on that day. 
we'll be found innocent. And not because we're better than other people, certainly not because we're nicer than other people, but because when all the secrets of our lives are laid bare, when our guilt is clear for all to see, it will also be seen that Jesus has died for every single sin. That he went through hell for us on the cross so that he can welcome us into heaven. But the secrets of our lives will still be laid bare and brought before him. God, God only has one standard when he judges people, how we lived. And he's totally just. He's got all the evidence. And that's actually great news. That there'll be no miscarriages of justice in the courtroom of God. God will be dealing with the reality of our lives. And how, how do you think you'd feel if, if your life was flashed up on our screen this morning? Now, everything. With, with perfectly clear audio for every word. Now, even, even the things you, you believe that are known only to you. The things done in, in the privacy of your own room. Or on the phone that no one else has access to except you. Can I say very honestly that if you saw my life like that, I have no doubt you would sack me as your pastor. No doubt at all. You see, however much we believe in God's forgiving love through Jesus, there's just a bit of us that clings to the idea that we're, we're a little bit better, we're a little bit nicer, we're not that bad. But Paul's already said in Romans, on the day that God judges the secrets of our hearts, we will be silent before him. But because we'll have nothing to say. That there won't be any comparisons. We won't be thinking, oh, I'm better than them. No, for those who know Christ, there'll only be an overwhelming sense of relief. Jesus has paid it all, dealt with it, freed us. We don't be afraid of God's punishment. We won't be ashamed. We'll be too busy praising Jesus for what he's done for us. Now, can I ask you this morning, do you know that confidence in facing the day when you'll give an account of your life to God. It could be a great day, the day when all evil and sadness and wickedness and pain and shame ends in our world. And it's a day that God wants you to face with confidence because of what Christ has done. He says, if you'll come to me now and accept the death of my son in your place, you need not fear my judgment because I have laid it upon him. That is, that is the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he wants you to come to him. And if you don't yet know that security and that love and that acceptance by a heavenly father, then can, can I encourage you just to come and chat to me afterwards? I'll be sitting down here at the front. I'd love to talk to you. I've got some, some, some booklets. I'd love to give you a booklet. It's simply called The Real Jesus. It just explains the truth of what God offers us in the Lord Jesus Christ to accept us, whatever we've done. And for those of us who know that, that we're so guilty that Christ had to be to crucified so that we have hope for that day, well, Paul's application is obvious. Why on earth are we looking down on one another? If, if we know what our lives are like, why are we judging one another? Instead, we should make it our aim to build one another up. 
Because briefly, just, just look at what this means for us as Christians here. Look at chapter 14 and verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. The same idea runs this section again and again. Don't destroy their faith. Don't cause them to fall or to stumble. It comes again in verse 21. Don't cause them to fall or stumble. Don't do anything that will be unhelpful to another Christian. Even if you know it doesn't matter to God, because it matters to them. I mean, look how Paul puts it. Look down at verse 14 with me. He, he says, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. I know we can eat anything, says Paul. But if you believe it's wrong to eat pork, then when you eat it, you'll be disobeying God in your heart. That idea comes in verse 23 as well of chapter 14. He says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now imagine you've got a seven-year-old kid and um, the seven-year-old believes that you said to them, you can't go out into the garden until you finish your homework. You didn't actually say that. You're actually thinking, well, it's fine, they can go have a bit of a play, bounce on the trampoline, get some energy out of them, then we'll do homework. But they believe they can't go into the garden, and you said so. You nip off to the loo, and they sneak through the kitchen door into the garden and start playing round the corner out of sight. Now, they haven't actually disobeyed you, but in their heart they have. They think they're rejecting what you've said. And that's what Paul is saying that Christians can do. It might be something that the Bible doesn't actually say is wrong, but if you're encouraging someone to do it and they believe it's wrong, you're leading them to disobey God. So your, your Christian mate comes around and he believes he should be teetotal, that it's always wrong to drink alcohol. So if you're going to be kind to him, you take the beer out of the fridge, you put it in an obscure cupboard and you offer him a Diet Coke. Maybe in time he'll come to see the Bible doesn't Forbid drinking alcohol, but don't make him disobey God in his heart by saying, come on, you'd love a cold beer, get it down you mate, you can. Now, in the end, that could be the start of him thinking, well, being serious about obeying Jesus doesn't really matter. I'll just, I'll just give it all up. Build them up, says Paul. Because what matters to God? Well, look at verse 17, what matters to God? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. God's not really interested in us policing each other over disputable matters, going around pointing out how we think little things are right and wrong in each other's lives. But he is interested in us living righteously, a right life according to his word before him. He is interested in us enjoying peace, a wonderful relationship with him and each other of love, and having joy through his Holy Spirit working in us. He cares about that stuff. That pleases him. And actually, that then creates a group of people who, who are praised by others, who, who display God's love to the world. People find that sort of church attractive. That's why Paul says in verse 19, 
Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, to build them up. Or, or 15, verse 2, each of us should please our neighbors for their good and build them up. You see, we shouldn't do what pleases us. In fact, the quickest way to get disunity is always to do what pleases us. No, we should try and please others to build them up. Now, Paul says in chapter 15, that's what Christ did for us at the cross. He didn't think about his own interests, his status, his comfort. He thought about ours. He laid aside all his rights. Though he, he was the creator and sustainer of the universe, he chose to be insulted and rejected so we could be loved and accepted. And not pleasing ourselves will mean, well, I guess it means coming to church, praying for Christ's sacrificial love for others in our heart. Not being a, a consumer on a Sunday, but a servant of Jesus every day. Not, not shopping around for a church where I feel good, but sticking at a church where I can faithfully hear God's word and faithfully serve. And when we think our preferences matter, well, look to the cross and see the love that really matters. And in the rest of our passage, Paul says that, that when we live in unity like that, when we're looking out for one another like that, when we're seeking to encourage one another like that, with Christ at the heart of our relationships like that, then we're actually living proof that the promises of God are true. That's an incredible thing. Living proof that what God says is true. I want to end by saying that we do enjoy an extraordinary degree of unity in our church. We really do. There is a real generosity, I think, amongst us over many things that Christians often disagree about very strongly and often divide about. And that generosity is a work of God's Spirit amongst us. We mustn't take it for granted. We must rejoice in it. But Paul knows it's going to be a battle for the Christians in Rome. It's certainly a battle for me not to judge other people. There's nothing worse than being a pastor to feel self-righteous. Some of you have heard me say before, I never went to a prayer meeting before you paid me to go. It's easy to look down on others from where I'm standing, quite literally. So, so if it's hard for you, not just to judge others from time to time, to, to look down on them, I wonder if you, as we finish, join me with Paul's prayer in chapter 15, verse 5 to 6. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. We're going to pray this together. Two things as we finish. If, if you don't yet know acceptance from God, will you come and hear of the God who's accepted you? Come and have a chat afterwards. And if you do know that God's accepted you, and you know what your heart is really like, will you pray this prayer? that we might be warm and loving to one another. Let's, let's pray this together. We'll say these words together from the screen. We say together, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.